Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. This is the word of our Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we look to your word and hear the voice of our Savior speaking to us, would you give us understanding this morning? Would you open up our hearts to receive correction this morning? God, I can't read this and not think that in some ways even my preaching is some sort of performance, some sort of something to be seen by others. God, may it not be so today. In, in every aspect of our lives, would you give us the sense of self-examination as we look to your word and, and enable us by your spirit to be able to see where the glory is being stolen from you, where it's being kept for ourselves and where we are trying to appear righteous on our own, either before others or in our own minds. God, guide us in your word make us more like our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. How are we doing on mics today? Should I switch? We're still working on this, church. All right. Well, if you are new with us, my name's Dustin, and I'm the, the preaching pastor here. And what we have been doing is going through the the book of Matthew together. That's what we do as a church. We look to God's word. I don't have any good ideas, but God does. And I don't know how to help you, but God does. And I can't save you, but God can. And so we look to his word and we hear from his word. And so whether you've been with us for a while or you're just joining us in our study of Matthew's gospel, I want to share you what's been happening in this book as we've been working our way, especially through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 3, Before we got to Jesus' sermon here, what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven was shown to be inaugurated on earth. It began with Jesus, his anointing as as the Christ, as the king at his baptism. And after a period of testing in the wilderness that proved his his worthiness for kingship, he began to take his, his message out into the country. And if you look back in the early parts of Matthew, you'll see that 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 message was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew tells us that as Jesus preached that message, people began to follow him. 
And then in chapter 5, where we've been for a little while, the, the king, Jesus, he ascends the hill, and his disciples, his followers, they gather around him to hear him speak. And they sit down to listen to him, and he begins to tell them what the citizens of this heavenly kingdom are like. We saw that in the Beatitudes. And then he tells, tells them how they're going to relate to the world around them. Right? Because the world is still in darkness. The world hasn't yet recognized the inauguration of this new kingdom. And they don't yet recognize the king. And so they're to live as, as strangers and, and foreigners in this land. But Jesus says that their presence is to be like salt and light. Holy other. Foreign. And we're to be so peculiar in what we do that those who see our good works will have no other explanation but to give glory to the Father. And Jesus goes on to say that, that what they should see in us as his people is the righteousness that we possess. Our righteousness is to be from our king. We're to be like him. What we have is Christ's righteousness. It's different. It's greater, he says, than the world's righteousness. He often calls this the, the righteousness of the Pharisees as we look throughout the book of Matthew. Worldly righteousness, we've been learning, is, is skin deep. Right? It's just on the outside. But the, the righteousness of kingdom citizens springs out of a heart that's been made new in Christ. Worldly righteousness can, can appear to be good, but upon closer examination... When the heart is exposed, it does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ. Then Jesus gave us these six examples that we've been studying. Six examples of, of how this works itself out, of, of how we can see this. He talked about how skin-deep worldly righteousness may be able to avoid murdering, but it falls short when it comes to giving in to the sin of, of anger or malice. He taught us that shallow righteousness can avoid adultery, but at its core, it cannot avoid lust. And shallow righteousness can appear good when it comes to divorce, but it fails to value marriage the way that heart-deep, God-honoring righteousness does. Shallow righteousness can appear to be truthful, too. But deep righteousness has this characteristic of truthfulness all the way down, all the way to the core, all the way to the heart. Shallow righteousness falls apart when it's assaulted or offended even, while deep righteousness proves itself to be true even under pressure. And then the last one, probably the hardest one for all of us, was when Jesus said those with a worldly righteousness can only truly love those who love them. That's what we saw last week. But those who are citizens of Christ's kingdom, those who have been given Christ's righteousness, well, we're like our Father. We love and provide even for those who oppose us. So if we were to summarize chapter 5, the beginning of, of the Sermon on the Mount, we could say Phariseeism, or what we would call legalism today, is the idea that you can get closer to God by avoiding certain sins. And Jesus teaches us over and over again with all of those examples, that is not enough. 
You can't just avoid certain sins and be closer to God. Why not? Well, he's been showing us. Because deep in the heart of all of us is this sinful nature. And even if it doesn't come out in the form of, of murder or adultery, it's going to show itself in anger. Or it's going to show itself in lust. Avoiding external sins is not enough to bring you and I close to God. We must be pure all the way down. We must be pure in heart. And Jesus said, only the pure in heart will see God. Listen, through faith in the finished work of Christ, our sinful hearts have got to be totally made new. Totally transformed by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to live a life pleasing to God. Some of us, though, might have finished chapter 5 and thought this. Okay, Jesus, so maybe my eyes wander more than they should. Maybe I get angry sometimes. Maybe I don't always turn the other cheek. But nobody's perfect, right? But you know what? I can atone, though. I can atone for those sins of mine by doing good. Right? I can give my money away and help the poor and needy. I can read my Bible. I can pray. I can go to church. I can visit the sick. I can go on a mission trip. If I've done something particularly bad, I can even fast. Surely those things will be enough to, to outweigh my minor indiscretions, right? Well, the answer that Jesus begins with in chapter 6 is no. Not right. Our, our good works, so in the same way that our, our bad works, or be, or avoiding sin doesn't get us closer to God, doing good things also doesn't get us closer to God. Our good works aren't enough either. Even our good works, if they don't come from a transformed heart, they're just, they're just proof of our selfishness. Holiness, listen, holiness isn't in what we do. Holiness is in who we are. And who you are is lived out in what you do. That's kind of the, the big overarching picture of righteousness that Christ is giving us here in the Sermon on the Mount. But let's get into this week's text, shall we? Look at how Jesus begins this next section. Verse 1 from our passage this morning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So even in our good works, we can be exposed to have a faulty, skin-deep righteousness. So what does Jesus say to do? Beware. Be on guard against this type of thinking. In the same way that we can be self-righteous with the things that we don't do, we can be self-righteous with the things that we do. We can do things in such a way that we want to be noticed by others. We can do things to receive praise from people, to be thought of as righteous by other people, while at the same time being rotten all the way to the core. But we get this. This is not foreign to us. Even the world knows that there is such a thing as a fake, showy righteousness. 
Anybody remember Wally Cleaver's friend, Eddie Haskell? <laughs> YouTube it, okay. <laughs> Eddie Haskell had this down pat, didn't he? Oh, what a lovely dress, Mrs. Cleaver. Gee whiz, Mrs. Cleaver, your hair looks stunning today. Eddie had the appearance of righteousness in front of adults, but when he was with his friends, what was he like? He was rotten. Behind his clean-cut, surface-level goodness was this manipulative, sinful heart. He'd throw a friend under the bus to avoid getting in trouble. He had appearances to keep up, didn't he? Eddie's kind of the extreme example of a pharisaical goody-two-shoes. But there are ways that Jesus wants us to see. We fall into this trap too. He's kind of the foil. But Jesus wants to show us these three different ways throughout the next several weeks. That we fall into this, this same trap. One of the ways that we might be tempted to do this is in our giving. Look at verse 2. Thus when you give to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And before we get too deep into this example, I want you to, to notice something here. It is expected that we should be giving. E- either directly or through some charity or through the church. Jesus does not say, if you give to the needy. Look at what he says. When you give to the needy. Giving charitably is such an expectation that even the unsaved world knows that this is a good thing to do. There's something wired into us that just knows giving to those in need is good. It's righteous. Nearly all of the world's religions... Understand charitableness to be a virtue. And for the truly devout, giving isn't just a virtue, it's actually an expectation. Giving is one of the most basic acts of any understanding of righteousness. Right? So, so whether you are Muslim or Mormon or Jewish or Buddhist, even atheists, they all understand giving to the needy is a universal good. I don't know how atheists came up with that, but they managed. <laughs> So, so Christian, listen, all right? At the very least, even if you miss the entire point of what Jesus is actually getting at here, don't be more selfish and stingy with your money than the world. And certainly, certainly don't be more stingy than the people Jesus calls the hypocrites here. For everybody, giving is sort of an expectation, This is what righteousness looks like. Either genuine righteousness or fake righteousness. They're both giving. Well, that's not Jesus' main point, but it is an assumption that he builds the rest of his argument on. So let's look at his driving point. Jesus says, when you give, don't blow a trumpet to announce what you're doing. Don't blow a trumpet. That's hyperbole. Nobody was blowing a trumpet when they gave, but he's saying that some of the ways that we do give are like blowing a trumpet don't draw attention to yourself is what he's saying and when you give don't march up kind of wave that big hundred dollar bill around and boy this is so big to get out of my pocket and put it in that, that he's, he's saying that 
That's not how we're to be like. We're not supposed to be showing others our generosity. This is one of those examples that really directly translates to our context, doesn't it? Sometimes we have to do a little adjusting to Jesus' illustrations. This one just is direct. It goes straight across. Poverty hasn't gone away, has it? So we still give in order to help feed and clothe and shelter and educate the poor. We give for other causes now too. Not long after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven, what happened? Well, the early church was established. And that first church we see in the book of Acts relied on the giving of her members in order to function. Our church is the same way. If people stop giving, our church can't function the way it was meant to. We're not a state church. And in the same way that hypocrites in Israel could give in such a way that brought attention to themselves, we can do that too. And we, sometimes we do. We can give to charity in such a way that draws attention to ourselves. We can give so that people would think well of us. I think the, the equivalent to this trumpet blowing is, is when you give to the church and then you ask that you be recognized for a giving. Many of you know that our kitchen needs an update. right? If you gave towards the kitchen project and then you ask that the kitchen be named after you, <laughs> that would be trumpet blowing. And it's, sadly, it's not rare in churches, is it? I don't... I, I'm, I praise God that I didn't come into a church with names on the pews. <laughs> it's certainly a quick way to raise money in the world. The world, the world does this really well because it, it appeals. If we're, if we're doing a fundraiser and we want to appeal to people's selfish desires, their desire to be thought of as righteous, we can do that. We can say, we'll put your name on it. But Jesus says, when you do that, you've already received your reward. What is the reward? Well, the reward you get will that people will they'll think highly of you. They'll admire you for your giving. They'll remember you. They'll see you as generous. They'll see you as righteous with your money. The problem, though, is that your giving will just be an advertisement for you. It's, it's no different than the businesses that, that sponsor the Little League, right? And, and they put their name in the outfield. So the insurance guy who gives to the Little League and then gets free advertising from the Little League his name's there on the back, the back fence. It's no different than that. And then we scale it up a little bit. Petco Park. They paid for that. Viejas Arena. SDCCU Stadium. All of these are just scaled up versions of the Little League thing, which are just another version of having a church kitchen named after yourself. Even... Even seeking, though, in just tiny ways. You know, maybe we don't want the, something named after us. Sometimes we're just seeking after something smaller, like a thank you. Or just a little recognition. Listen to what Martin Luther says about this. If we cease our charitable deeds because men are ungrateful, that shows that we were not aiming to please and honor God. I think the last time that you gave to someone and then complained that they were ungrateful when they received it. I can think of the last time I did that. What Luther's saying, that shows I wasn't aiming to please God when I did that. If you get upset with someone because they didn't respond with the gratefulness 
that you were expecting Luther saying you had the wrong motive when you gave to them. What are some of the other motives that we have for giving? How about tax write-offs? It's a hard one, right? It's a tricky one. Josh and I were talking about this this week. God expects us to be shrewd with our finances. Right? We're supposed to be. We're supposed to use what God has given us to his glory, and we're supposed to steward it well and to not, to not waste it. So it's not wrong. We'll say that again. It's not wrong to get a tax deduction for charitable giving. But if you only give for the tax write-off, that should be a concern to you. Around the middle of last year, I don't know if you remember the, the big debate about the, the new federal budget and the, the new tax laws, uh, some churches were really concerned, probably about last summer, because the standard deduction went up. And what, what was the concern there? If the standard deduction goes up, then you don't have to give in order to get the write-off. You just take the standard deduction. And people were afraid that their giving would decrease because their, their members weren't required to give to the church in order to get the deduction. But think about it. If our people are only giving in order to get the tax write-off, there are some major issues, aren't there? There's some major issues that we have to address. Issues more concerning about the, than the functioning of the church. More concerning than the, whether or not we'll make budget. Look at the word that Jesus uses to describe people who would give like this. Hypocrites. A strong word. Hypocrites. That word literally means less than, hypo, less than, genuine. The ancient Greeks called actors in plays the hypocriti. They were the people who were putting on a show for everyone else. But the parts that they were playing were not really who they were. Right? They were just acting. They were actors. Hypocritical giving is giving in such a way that you look good to everyone else, but you're you're doing it to get an earthly reward. That's all Jesus is getting at. Your motives are not pure. Whatever that earthly reward is, I mean, we, we only talked about a couple of them, but there are countless ways. Our sinful hearts can come up with all sorts of ways, can't they? But the heavenly citizen, the heavenly citizen is to give with a motivation that is different from the world's. We don't give to get an earthly reward. We don't do it for the recognition of man. We don't do it to be thought of as as righteous by others. In fact, look carefully. Jesus says we aren't even to try and appear righteous to ourselves. Look at verses 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The right hand shouldn't even know what the left hand is doing. Now, how is that? What does he mean by that? Well, giving is one of the ways that we try to be found righteous in ourselves. Even when we aren't trying to get the, the, the approval of others or to be found righteous by others, we will, we will like, to, we like to try and at least be found righteous in ourselves. That makes sense? I kind of jumbled that up. (laughs) 
We want to feel righteous. And giving can make us feel righteous, regardless of what other people think. Earlier this week, I googled, why should I give to charity? There were lots of hits. Okay, lots of hits. And over and over again, do you know what the top answer was? To feel good about yourself. Another one that, that topped the list was to improve your self-worth. Do you want to feel as if you are worth more? Give. There are loads of lists like this. The top five reasons to give, the top seven reasons to give, the top eight reasons to give. And at the top of every one of those lists was the motivation of feeling better about yourself. On down the list, you keep going and you see a lot of really worldly things. One of them was this, so that you could alleviate feelings of guilt. Give because you feel guilty. Like that was an actual top five list. This is what Jesus is warning us against. That's why he says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. The right hand will say to the left hand, left hand, oh, this is the right hand, left hand, take note. The feeling of guilt and inadequacy that our soul has been dealing with, how about I try and make that go away? We're going to give to the guy ringing the bell at Walmart. And the left hand says, good idea. I'll reach into the left pocket and give it to you. Right? There's this, this conversation we have with ourselves. I'm going to make my guilt go away. I'm going to try and feel better about myself. I'm going to try and be righteous in myself. And Jesus warns us, don't do it. That's not how we're to give. Don't give in such a way as to feel better about yourself. That shouldn't be your motive. Or to put it theologically. He's protecting us from giving in order to try and atone for our own sin. He's saying, be on guard against that type of self-righteousness. See, we know, all of us knows, Christian or not, we know that our sin must be dealt with. Even unbelievers know deep down there is something wrong. We all know that there are dark places in our hearts that are in rebellion against God. We're not, maybe we're not able to name it. Maybe we can't describe it. But we know it's true. And we have this, this weight. We have this feeling of guilt. And so the way that some of us try and deal with that is by giving. Give and give and give and serve and serve and serve to try to make those feelings of guilt go away. But it doesn't work. No amount of giving can take away your guilt. No amount of giving can heal those, those, those deep, dark places. No check you can write can bring you closer to God or make you a better person. The only way, the only way to have our sins atoned for is by the work of Christ. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that I can do to get closer to God. That's something only Jesus himself can accomplish for us. And the price he paid wasn't pocket change. It wasn't a check. No amount of money. Grace isn't cheap. 
Jesus Christ had to give his whole life in order for my sins and your sins to be atoned for. He had to give his life in order to bring you and I into right standing before God. And by right standing, do you know what I mean? Adoption. Through Christ's work, we have been made clean. And through Christ's work, we have been adopted by God. And so now, because of Christ's work, we don't just call God, God. We call Him Father. He's not the man upstairs. He's not some distant, powerful being. He's not a benevolent overlord or a blind watchmaker. He's our Father. Seventeen times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he refers to God as our Father. That's more than the entire Old Testament put together. So we shouldn't overlook this. We've just stepped into the new covenant, and Jesus is calling God our Father. This would have been really, really weird for the people hearing this. It would have stood out to them. You and I are used to it. Calling God our Father is normal for us. But I want you to feel the weight of this. Jesus is speaking to a people that that won't even say God's name or write down his name because he's so holy, he's so set apart. They're so distant from God that they have to go through priests just to plead for forgiveness. They have to go through priests just to worship. And here is Jesus talking to his disciples and he's saying, in his kingdom, the kingdom that has come, the relationship you can have with God is like a father and a son. And it's out of that relationship that all of our good works flow. And this is important, okay? Because rather than being seen as as righteous by others or being seen as righteous in ourselves, our motivation to give comes from our relationship with our Father. Our giving comes as a result of our sonship or our daughterhood. We give because of who we are in Christ. And who we are is adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We've been brought in to be His children. And every action now, every action is to be motivated by the desire to be near Him, to imitate Him, to see Him watching us. So so it's not this. It's not, God, will you love me? Will you accept me if I do this for you? It's more like this. Hey, Dad, watch this. There's a sense of of peace. a, A confidence in being a child of the Father. We know that we're accepted by Him. Because of Christ's work for us. So we don't have to pretend to be right with God by looking good on the outside. We don't have to perform in order to be right with God by doing good things. Because of Christ, we have been adopted by God. And we're His children. And so we live for His good pleasure. We live for His glory. Our desire to do good and avoid evil flows out of that. Because that's the way that we live with a transformed heart. And this sets up this last issue in the text that we haven't dealt with yet. Maybe you've seen it. 
Maybe you read it this week and you were wondering, where are we going to go with this? I don't want us to miss this, though. It's this idea of reward. You see that? Reward. He keeps talking about it. It's not something that we talk about much, especially as evangelicals. It's something that I'm often afraid to preach about. It's kind of weird for me to even think about doing anything before God in order to receive a reward from him. It feels dirty to me. And yet Jesus says, plain as day, three different times in this passage, he uses the word reward. Two different times, it's a reward from the Father. If we do good to be seen by others, we lose our reward from the Father. If we give in secret, our Father who sees in secret will reward us. This isn't an accident. It comes up again next week. Look at verse 6, Matthew 6, 6. Don't pray to be seen by others. Pray in secret so your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then look at verse 18 later on. Don't fast to be seen by others, but fast in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This idea of reward is a big deal to Jesus, and so it should be a big deal to us. And the burning question for me is, so what is he talking about? What does he mean by reward? What's God offering us that the world doesn't? Because if it's a pat on the back, I can get that from the, from the world. If it's acceptance, I can get that from the world. If it, it's a crown or jewels in my crown or a fancy robe, I can get that from the world. And we can get it now and see it now. So what's the reward? Why is it so special? Well, Jesus doesn't say. There's no mention of bigger houses or nicer cars in heaven. There's no mention of crowns or jewels, just this reward. A reward with the Father. We're to be so satisfied. This is what he wants us to see. We're to be so satisfied in our Father and so trusting that we just know he's going to take care of us. Think, think of it this way. Think of a two-year-old working in the yard with his dad. He's pushing one of those bubble-blowing lawnmowers, right? Red ones. His dad's cutting the grass in a safe way away from the child. And the boy doesn't care what the neighbors think about him, does he? He's two. He's not thinking about himself. He's not aware of how goofy it is to try and mow the lawn with a bubble-blowing lawnmower. He's not aware of himself. And he's definitely not thinking, Dad, what will you pay me for the work that I'm doing? What's he doing? He's just spending time with his dad. He's imitating his dad. He's doing what his dad does. And he's totally unaware of anything else. He's simply finding his joy and his satisfaction being in the presence of his father. So think about it. Just keep going with this analogy. When you think about it, he's not doing anything that his father can't accomplish on his own, is he? He's simply enjoying being with him. So one day, years later, when his father leaves him an inheritance, will he say, I received this from my father because I stumbled around in the yard in my diaper, pushing my Fisher-Price lawnmower, 
taking breaks to eat dirt and chase butterflies. No. The reward, the inheritance is given because he's the child of the Father. Our reward is given the same way. It's not because we did something that God couldn't do. God can bring manna from heaven, can't he? God can multiply loaves and fishes. He doesn't need us. Not to mention everything we have is his already. He gave us everything we possess. When we give, he's just giving through us. And because of that, our reward is grossly disproportionate to what we've actually done. Our giving to the needy is roughly equivalent to mowing the lawn with a pretend lawnmower. And yet what we receive for our service to the Father is unimaginable, isn't it? God's gifts are not meritorious. But they're gifts. There is reward. And it's given to us not because of the importance of our work, but because in this life, our satisfaction in being a child of the Father was complete. Our inheritance comes to us because our hope, our trust, our faith, our loves, our desires, our entire lives were lived as children of the Father. We simply live in response to what He's done for us, and we're rewarded for it because we're His children. Paul puts it this way at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's just grace from God to us grace flowing through us to even be a part of it. Grace upon grace. Friends, praise His holy name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask You this morning that You would help us to be satisfied in You. That when we give, it would simply be a, a flowing out of, of who we are in Christ. And that, oh, that we would give. Father, make us such a generous people. That there's no explanation, no human explanation for why we love one another so much and why we love you so much and why we want to see your glory spread through the earth. No explanation, but that we're your children, that we belong to you. Let others see us, your new creation people, and give you glory. Father, how far I am from that. How far so many of us are from that. So we pray that as, as we continue to grow in Christ together, that you would make us more and more aware of all of these hidden motives that we have. 
and that we would be able to, to throw them aside and cling to Jesus Christ. And that your name would be glorified in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.